Well, as you've just heard in our children's message this morning, we're in a new sermon series with this new year. What light will you follow? And uh, this is the second week in the series, but the first week in which we're dealing with the book of Colossians in the New Testament. So we will be uh, working our way through Colossians over the next several weeks, and uh, we begin with the first chapter, beginning with the third verse through the 14th verse. So I invite you to listen for God's Word as it comes to us from the book of Colossians. In our prayers for you, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You've heard of this hope before in the word of the truth, the gospel that has come to you. And just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it has been bearing fruit among yourselves from the day you heard it and truly comprehended the grace of God. This you learn from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he's made known to us your love in the Spirit. And for this reason, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord and fully pleasing to Him as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from His glorious power. And may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who's enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious and loving God, as this new year begins, we once again come to worship you, to begin again here, to hear your word, that you might be a light unto our path. We pray now that you'd quiet within us any voice but your own and speak to us as only a living God can. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In his book of a few years back, entitled Blood Brothers, Father Elias Shakur tells the story of his youth and the education that he received. Many of you may remember when Father Shakur was here back in 2013 at the San Marino Community Church. He was a boy who was raised in Palestine. His family was displaced following World War II by the return of the Jews to that area. And there was tension over the land when he was growing up. There still is. Families had to raise their children, and they hoped for a better future for the next generation. Elias was the youngest child in his family. His father, Michael, approached the bishop, and he said, 
Bishop, excuse me, I have a request. He nodded politely with a hint of weariness in his smile. What is it, Michael? said the bishop. I have a son, my youngest. His name is Elias. He's a good student, and I want to send him to a good school. Please, can you help me? Now, others who were present at the moment were a little indignant with Michael for asking something so personal from the bishop. They were trying to get their homes back. They were trying to recover their land that had been given away. But the bishop smiled and he said, let me think on this for a little while, Michael. Come and see me before I leave the village. Now, he didn't have a proper school to send Elias to. So the bishop later explained to Michael that there was an orphanage near the bishop's home. And Elias would be welcomed there, and the bishop promised to see after his education personally. So Michael accepted the offer with deep sense of gratitude. Michael's wife, Elias's mother, was less eager to send off her youngest son, but eventually she agreed. And then his father, Michael, took Elias aside, and with a catch in his voice, he exclaimed, In a few days, we will take you to the bus. You're going to Haifa on the coast to study with the bishop. This is a wonderful opportunity for you, Elias. You'll never have such a chance here in Gish. And there's another thing, he said, pausing. Now his father searched my eyes with his steady, serious gaze. You're not being sent away to be spoiled by privilege. Learn all you can from the bishop. If you become a true man of God, you will know how to reconcile enemies and how to turn hatred into peace. Only a true servant of God can do that. Father Shakur writes in his book, I could scarcely fathom such an enormous sounding task. At 12 years old, I had never seen beyond our hills. End quote. Our little prayer in the first chapter of Colossians for spiritual wisdom and understanding sounds a little bit like that advice that Michael gave to Elias Shakur, his youngest son. You're not being educated to be spoiled by privilege, but so your life can exhibit real fruit in every good work as you grow in the knowledge of faith. And you will learn to endure with patience and joyfully, thankfully live life when you grow in the knowledge of God. Here in this book, Paul argues for Christian wisdom. It's an alternative to the religious fundamentalism on the one hand of the day and the philosophical intellectualism that has no place for God on the other. He wants to leave the door ajar to the unknown and recover a sense of wonder, which is the beginning of spiritual wisdom. 
which is the beginning of growing spiritually. And he charts a path through Jewish fundamentalism and Greek intellectualism. Now, a few years ago, while visiting some friends, I had the occasion to speak to their son, who had recently graduated from college. He and five of his friends spent six weeks touring Europe as part of their graduation celebration. They stayed in hostels. They traveled by Eurail Pass, England, Ireland, Paris, Munich, Switzerland, Bulgaria, just a few of the destinations they hit. And it was immediately apparent as he was telling me the story that this adventure in the cradle of Western civilization had been really, truly an enjoyment. So I asked him, what was the most interesting part of your trip? And he had described the experience at the Jameson Distillery in Ireland. <laughs> Apparently they were taking pictures for advertisements for the distillery and they asked these boys to pose for them. And I thought, well, okay, you know, here's a bunch of fraternity brothers at the Jameson Distillery getting their pictures taken. I can see how a young man might find that interesting. So I pressed on a little bit and I asked about Paris. Did you see the Louvre, the, the great famous art museum? Yeah, we did, but, you know, I was finished with that place in about 15 minutes, he said. Then he told me about this fascinating description of riding waterfalls down the side of a mountain in Switzerland. So I asked him about Munich, and he simply said, ah, there's nothing to do there except drink. And by the end of that conversation, I found myself dismayed and a little disappointed that a recent college graduate could find so little of European history and culture and art and architecture of any interest at all. So much to learn from the generations that have preceded us, to explore art and literature and music, to see where so much history has taken place that affects us today. And it seems these guys largely went through college and then Europe finding nothing to do there but drink. Now, I don't want to be too severe in my judgment of these guys. They no doubt deserve some time to celebrate following their graduation, and I think much can be attributed to youthful indiscretion and exuberance. And I was probably no different at their age. As the old saying goes, we get too soon old and too late smart. What really concerns me is that what these boys reflected may be something of a changing worldview. They may actually reflect a bit of a societal shift that's taking place regarding our cultural values. We seem to be so focused on the present and we've lost touch with what we can learn from the past. And therefore, we may just be sleepwalking into the future. And I know I'm not alone when I express some concern for this generation of young college students, and especially young men in college today. Years ago, in an article in the L.A. Magazine, Times Magazine, 
Jack Smith was reflecting on the subject of wonder. He quoted Carl Sagan, the world-renowned astronomer and astrophysicist, famous for writing about popular science and for the television show Cosmos. Sagan writes that wonder is a very powerful emotion. All children feel it. In a first-grade classroom, everybody feels it. In a 12th-grade classroom, almost nobody feels it, or at least acknowledges it, end quote. Something happens between the first and twelfth grades, and it's not just puberty. Jack Smith does not so much place blame for this reality on our educational system, but he suggests that we don't like to admit what we don't know. Smith writes, Remember when you used to wonder, why was the sky blue? Why did water always run downhill? Why does the moon shine? Where did frost come from? Why do bees sting? Where does God live? He goes on, We gather from the test scores of college students that the young no longer wonder about the geopolitical world they live in. Some can't even find the United States on a world globe. End quote. See, both science and faith depend upon a sense of wonder and a willingness to admit that you don't know very much yet. So if you're feeling today like you haven't really figured life out yet, you might just be all right, and you might be on the right track, because that's the first step towards spiritual wisdom, a sense of wonder. Jesus Christ seeks to open our eyes and our minds to the mysteries of this life and God's presence with us. The Nobel Prize winning physicist Richard Fenman describes his sense of wonder when he writes about the value of uncertainty in science. He writes, If you know you are not sure, you have a chance to improve things. There's a distinction between knowledge and wisdom. We can be misled by facts. Boy, we certainly know that in today's world. In this information age where bits of information just explode instantaneously in the transmission of news and data around the globe and onto our computers and our cell phones and our televisions and our radios, and we can live under the illusion that we actually know something worth knowing. But the truth is that all of this information simply can create the illusion that we're informed. When the reality is that we're more likely just superficially skimming over the surface of the pond. We shouldn't confuse knowledge with wisdom. Knowledge is the accumulation of facts. Wisdom is knowing what to do with those facts. Wisdom is knowing how to live, given what we know. 
Now, one of the most famous beloved American founts of wisdom is Benjamin Franklin. His wisdom has withstood the test of time. Dost thou love life, he writes? Then do not squander time, for that's the stuff life is made of. If you're like me, Franklin Covey has picked up this little gem and turned it into a multi-million dollar business of providing organizational tools and calendars for those who are seeking not to squander time. I've just replaced my last year's Franklin planning calendar with this year's. Here's another one from Benjamin Franklin. Wish not so much to live long as to live well. Well, the Bible is full of wisdom literature that seeks to guide us towards living well and living long. For thousands of years before we arrived on the scene in this world, wisdom has been accumulated and passed from generation to generation. If we dismiss it as useless, or worse, have no knowledge of it at all, we're doomed to repeat, repeat the mistakes of those who've gone before us. Learning only from our own personal experience is a difficult way to learn. James describes God's wisdom this way. The wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. Now isn't that the kind of understanding and learning that we really hope our children will receive when they go off to college? Wisdom is not merely knowledge that's stored in our heads. It's knowledge that has penetrated our hearts and moved into our lives. It takes up residence in our will. It's fascinating to me that the head and the heart are roughly 18 inches apart, and it can be the longest 18 inches in the world. Facts absorbed in the mind never make the journey and become integrated into the heart. And like those boys trekking their way through Europe, we sometimes make our way through life with no idea of what's gone on before us, no comprehension of the significance of what we've received or the sacrifices made by others, no sense of what is truly valuable. Little idea of the future we're creating for ourselves and for others. You know, just a few years ago, I received a phone call from a friend, a man who was going to speak at a funeral for a colleague. <laughs> Let there be light. <laughs> I think I just bumped something over here. There we go. Fits right into the sermon series, doesn't it? I mean... This, uh, this friend called and wanted to talk to me before he made his comments at the funeral. His colleague 
the two of them actually worked in the area of pain research where they were trying to understand the phantom pain that people who have lost limbs feel and how to deal with it but apparently this researcher was unable to deal with his own pain and he took his own life how ironic that someone so well educated studying the pain in the lives of others was unable to manage his own and ended his life with suicide it's possible to have a great deal of knowledge and not become wise so Paul in this book is arguing for a Christian wisdom it's an alternative to the religious fundamentalism of the day on the one hand and the philosophical intellectualism that had no place for God on the other and he wants to leave this door ajar to the unknown and recover a sense of wonder which is the beginning of spiritual wisdom so he charts this path through Jewish fundamentalism on the one hand and Greek intellectualism on the other and he writes for Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom but we proclaim Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God it's Christ who helps us recover a sense of wonder and integrates our minds and our hearts into one life that is lived with thankfulness faithfulness and fruitfulness this is the light that guides us towards the future rather than a closing of the mind faith opens us to new learning and deeper wisdom of God there's just so much in Christ that remains unexplored and untapped by most of us as we wander our way through life like a couple of college fraternity brothers in Europe and God seeks to give us a spiritual wisdom and all that comes with it a fruitful life that's precisely what we want for ourselves and for our children so may you be made strong with the strength that comes from his glorious power and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light thanks be to God amen